Okay, uh, so Revelation chapter 20. I'm always glad for visitors in the room because it makes me, you know, try to make it uh, practical and relevant. And uh, I'm, I'm going to attempt to do that this morning. Now, so Revelation chapter 20 is notoriously difficult. And I've been thinking about that for probably three weeks. And last week, we began talking about it. And I gave you two pieces of white paper, or sorry, yellow paper. And they're in the back, too. Let me just say, I don't, like, I gave you those papers last week. I don't find that stuff, it's certainly not terribly edifying, And I'm not even sure I find it terribly helpful, this enumeration of views. There are four approaches to the book of Revelation, and here they are. Here's the strengths of this one and the weaknesses of it. And and then here are three views of the millennium. That's the uh, thousand years that we're going to read about in chapter 20. I gave you a piece of yellow paper about the three views. and, and as I've thought about it and reflected on it, and I've probably listened to three messages and read all kinds of books about it, not completely, but, you know, just been thinking about this, here's what I have to say, and it's in this box uh, on the gray piece of paper here. Now, so Revelation chapter 20, uh, do you see my title? It's kind of a weird word. Do you see my title for this session? Estuary. Estuary. Anybody know what an estuary is? Anybody? It is a body of water. I mean, it's a. It's a. It, uh, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, you're you're right on it. It's a stream that runs into a larger body of water, but the 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 specific issue of an estuary, and it's not like the perfect term, but it is a place where at times, for example, when a river runs into the ocean, think about it, fresh water runs into salt water, okay? That's really where I'm getting to, but an estuary is a, is a wetland, it's an it's a area where water is, and it's affected by tides, tides, you know, the tide comes in, it goes out. So an estuary, at times the fresh water would flow out, and at other times when the tide comes in, the salt water would come back into it. So it's kind of this, and, and here's the point of using this term as a title for Revelation 20, it's a point where two things meet. I saw some very, I should have put it up here, I'm just lazy. Uh, I saw some interesting videos that have been taken from a long height, a great height and a long distance, where you can see the murky, coffee-colored fresh water of a river oozing out into the blue water of the ocean, and there would be this little line of foam as this, this fresh water and this salt water, there's actually, there's a divide between the two. Now, here's the point for using that, and you see, you see my t- subtitle here. Uh, chapter 20, as I think about it, is like an estuary where the river meets the sea. Now, what I'm talking about is where the river of time flows into eternity. You know, that's all, okay, so that's a big concept already, where time flows into eternity. Somewhere I was listening, I can't remember now, uh, but 
Uh, oh, I know. It was John Adams' biography, thanks to Dennis Plyler and my father. I'm listening to it and kind of reading the book. Uh, John Adams' grandkids were playing with his clay pipe in his house one evening. He's older, late in life, and they're blowing soap bubbles uh, through his clay pipe in, into the room. And as was his custom, Adams says, that's kind of metaphorical for our young country. Uh, but it's also kind of metaphorical about the book of Revelation. John had this vision of, of time. Time is just a little bubble in eternity. Okay, If I could blow a soap bubble right now, a little, I don't know how to describe it, but fragile, uh, wouldn't last very long. You know how it sometimes just poof, and a little drip would fall on the carpet? It's kind of translucent a little bit, and it just kind of, that's kind of time. Time's not going to last forever like this, okay? Uh, I was reminded of that starkly way deep in the delta of Arkansas yesterday afternoon. Uh, Rosemary Tilson's mother passed away Wednesday night. If you were here in this room, you heard Jim Umloff say that. Uh, I was just reading Psalm 90 about our, our lives are very short, and then here's the phrase, then we fly away. That's the phrase in Psalm 90. Our lives are very short. We live 70, maybe 80 years. They're fraught with trouble, and then we fly away. And uh, so, so time and life are, are not magazines, but like the actual time in our lives are just short little bubbles in light of eternity. So as you think about, we're going to read this in just a second, this chapter in this vision that John had on that Sunday afternoon, this sequence of visions about the end, about things that were shortly going to come to pass, we're at the place in that vision where the river of time is flowing into the ocean of eternity. Now, I could try to say that in a different way, but uh, I think you get the point. Now, uh, maybe I'll read, uh, let, let's, let's read the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, 1 through 10. I've, I've read this last week, but I'll, I'll read it again because, and I'll make a point about the importance of reading the text here in just a moment. Okay, Revelation 20, understanding now, pretty much everything on that gray sheet. Did I mention why I chose the color gray? I did, didn't I? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of gray areas in what I'm getting ready to say to you. Uh, so, but here's the text of the Word of God. Verse 1. Then... Which, which re- implies and reminds us this is a context here. If you go back to chapter 19, it's full of episodes where it says, I saw this, and then I saw that, and then I saw a rider on a white horse, and then I saw an angel, and then I saw the beast, and a giant war, and all that, okay? So this is, and I don't, you know, it'd be nice to read that whole context, and I'm not gonna, but it's got a context, so don't forget that. Uh, so after he sees this giant war and Christ basically just uh, eliminating all of his enemies uh, with the breath of his mouth, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now he, he sees this. It doesn't mean that there was an actual angel coming out of the sky with a key that if he had dropped it on John's head, it would have made a bump. It wasn't an actual key. 
but it was a real key in the vision that he saw. Don't forget that. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm getting ready to say that too in just a moment. Holding in his key, sorry, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, that Greek word is abusos, uh, abyss. Some translations, maybe yours, say the abyss. He had the key to the abyss and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, presumably with that chain, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, presumably with the key, so that he might not do his thing which is to deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge, keep that in mind, you're going to hear more about that in a moment, the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, a theme that we have heard about uh, before chapter 20. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This, that resurrection we read about in chapter, verse 4, this, uh, the beheaded martyrs, Christian martyrs, that came to life in verse 4, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, over such people like those, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, a concept that we've read about in chapter 1, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog a concept from Ezekiel 38 and 39, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, consult chapter 19, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. Uh, there's a big difference between reading this text and hearing it and, and the impact of it on your own minds as you were just thinking about all of these events that John is seeing. This this, where the river of time flows into eternity. What's happening here? Well, the, the biggest enemies 
are being eliminated. That's, that's part of what's happening here, all right? But this phrase that occurs seven times in these first seven verses, this thousand years, creates in the minds of a lot of people a lot of questions. What is this thousand-year period, and how does it, when is it, and, and all of that? And so it makes this chapter, I don't know what to call it, but it, it just generates lots of head-scratching as people try to understand not what it says, because it says what it says, and it's easy enough to understand what it says, but, but understanding the meaning of it is, is really hard. All right, so let me make a couple of points about that, and then we'll go back to the text. Now, uh, all right, so here's, here's one point. The text that Jimmy just read from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, that text about fearing God and that message that he gave about fearing God, well, in the verse right before that one, I noticed it and I wrote it in my notes here. It says, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. (laughs) I'm serious. I could bring in a stack of books this high about Revelation. And I'm telling you, that's, that's not all of them. D- do you know that, because a lot of us appreciate Reformed theology and the Puritans and the age of the Reformation, do you know that more was written about the Revelation during that era than just about any other time? That a lot of these Puritan guys wrote commentaries on the book of Revelation, many of which, says D.A. Carson, are best forgotten because uh, it's hard. So anyway, uh, I, I know because I was sitting where you are listening to some guys trying to explain this chapter, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you're inflicting all of this information on these people that, you know, how much do they really care? And uh, so I get it. I want, you to, I want you to be encouraged by this next verse, 2 Peter 3.16. Peter, who was Peter? He was a disciple. He was an apostle. He was a leader in the early church, was he not? Okay. The book of Acts, as a matter of fact, could, could be thought of as, first it's about Peter, and then it's about who? Paul. Okay. Peter's a major character in the first part of the book of Acts. He was no small figure in the establishment of the church. So he writes these two letters, which are profound. And this is what he says. Our dear brother Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. That's what Peter said about Paul. One of the apostles says about another apostle, some of the stuff he wrote is hard to understand. Now, the irony is, if you read 2 Peter, there's a lot of stuff in there that's hard to understand. Paul would be saying, back at you, bub, because that letter you wrote, that stuff you're talking about, uh, that's hard to understand too. All right, so some scriptures, including Revelation chapter 20, are just hard to understand. I'm kind of really saying that for my benefit, uh, 
you're thinking, yeah, so much of it's hard to understand. I just kind of check out and you, you know, dig yourself in the ditch. And when you're done, I'll come back and everything will be fine. Uh, Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to his disciples, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Those are big, broad words for time the biggest words for time. They wanted to know, if you read that and you remember the context, Lord, are you going to establish the kingdom now? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know that. Okay? So, uh, studying too much is makes you tired. A lot of stuff we don't understand. And Jesus himself said, how this all works out in time isn't given for us to understand. All right? So, my burden is, all right, then, what can we or what are we supposed to get from reading a text like Revelation chapter 20? My, oh, you got one, dear? Okay, great. Yeah, okay. Uh, all right. Uh, next in the box. Just so that you can know this, there are three different views on this thousand years that we read about in Revelation 20. This is the only place in the New Testament where this thousand-year period is mentioned. Now, if you're really sharp with your Bible, you might say, yeah, but Peter said, remember what he said? With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. Kind of like one of my Sunday school classes. One 45-minute period of time feels like a thousand years. Uh, uh, so, so he does use that as a figure of speech. A, with the Lord, a, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Why is that? Because he's the Lord of time. He's infinite. Uh, pass that back, would you, to uh, Doris, who's looking and not finding those. All right. Uh, there are three views on the nature of the thousand years in Revelation 20, and particularly, and here's where you're going to hear some terms here, and these terms are trying to describe the relationship of this thousand-year period of time, what is it, and what's the relationship of that thousand years to the return of Christ, okay? All right, uh, three terms. The first term, and I, I don't know, it doesn't matter what order you put them in, but this makes sense to me, premillennial. Has anybody ever heard that term, pre-millennial? Okay, pre-before, pre, a pre-me, a, a pre-millennial means Christ returns before the millennium. Now, this is so exhausting and produces so much, you know, writing and defending of views and all this stuff. Pre-millennialists, pre-millennialists, have different understandings of the nature of the millennium. Some of them say, no, it is, it's a literal thousand years on our ca- calendars, in our time, and Jesus Christ is actually reigning with people here on earth. All right? So, some of them say that. Some of them say, well, it might be symbolic. It may or may not be a thousand years. After all, numbers in Revelation are usually symbolic, are they not? You're supposed to say, yes, they are. Uh, Seven, we've talked about this. Seven is symbolic. Twelve is symbolic. Four is, uh, these numbers are primarily symbolic in Revelation. So we, and here's the problem. We read this and we're not experts on having visions from God. First of all, 
Neither are we familiar with writing at the time when John wrote this, 1st century A.D., some say before 70, some say around the late 90s in the 1st century A.D., we're not familiar with the cultural understandings. Like those people wouldn't understand rap or hip-hop or rock and roll or even symphony. Those people in the first century, there are so many things that we understand that, that they would have no clue about, like electricity, nuclear energy. Okay, so there's a disconnect between our, between our cultures. All right, so premillennial. Postmillennial, you, you get it, Christ is coming back after the thousand years. Okay, postmillennialists basically say the preaching of the gospel uh, is going to continue to bear fruit and gain traction. The kingdom of God is going to continue to expand. And it's pretty exciting to think about the fact that indeed the kingdom of God is expanding. And I heard statistics about how many people groups in the world have now heard the gospel, uh, uh, how, how the message of the gospel is spreading through the world. And uh, so anyway, they say that the preaching of the gospel is going to continue to gain power and traction, and there's going to be this golden millennial age of gospel-based kingdom expansion here and now in our world as we know it. And after that millennium, that golden age, that age of Camelot, okay, we, we, you know, you think about that, uh, then, then Christ is going to come post-millennial, after the millennium. One good thing about this view is that it reminds us how important the preaching of the gospel is. We tend to grow comfortable and kind of quiet, and, but that's not how we should supposed to be. God's people are supposed to be gospel people who are excited about leveraging any and every opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection and the free gift of salvation that comes from turning away from our sin and, and embracing by simple faith alone the Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's only one way to know God, only one way to live forever, and that is through faith in Him, period. We're supposed to get jazzed about that. And if we're ignorant of the gospel, if, if we are complacent about the fact that God sent His Son to die for me, He died for me, He shed His blood, He suffered out of great love for me individually, uh, and, and my sins are gone, and God's not mad at me anymore. As a matter of fact, He's as pleased with me as He is with His own beloved Son. And I'm secure, and there's access. That's supposed to be a source of comfort to us, to you and me. So this post-millennial view, uh, while it's not terribly convincing to me personally, that's a great aspect of that view. Okay, and then finally, the third main view uh, is amillennial. And let me read this, or at least tell you, that most of the people who claim that viewpoint claim to be amillennialist, they equivocate about that title. They say, I don't like that title, 
I mean, they really do say it. This is not me saying it about them. They say, I don't like that title, amillennial, because it sounds like we don't believe in a millennium. Everybody believes in a millennium because we all have the same text. Revelation 20 is there for everybody. We're just trying to understand it. So they say, no, 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 we, we believe in a millennium. We just believe that it is a spiritual reign of Jesus Christ that started when he died and rose from the dead and bound Satan, all right, whenever that was, 33 AD, and it's going to continue until he comes back. He's reigning now. We're reigning with him in heaven. Just read Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, So they don't deny the thousand years in Revelation, but they interpret it as symbolic of Christ's present reign. Now, I'm telling you, every single one of these views uh, emphasizes phrases and sequences, and they, they go into this, and they talk about this, and they go into that, and they talk about that. All right, so let me make these points. Who, which one of these is right? For those of you who like to have your T's crossed and your I's dotted, for those who don't like gray, you like the black and white that uh, some of you got the black and white paper. Uh, who's right? How should we think about this? All right, here's some things that have helped me. I, I hope that this isn't completely feels like a waste of time to you. I hope it won't. Uh, first of all, point number one, how should we think about the fact all of you at some level will appreciate the fact that there are some issues in our Christian faith that you care about that are, that are not necessarily so clear. And you may have struggled to understand particular things. Like, how can God elect a specific group of people uh, but, but offer salvation as a free gift and we're supposed to preach the gospel and urge people to be saved? But if God's sovereign and He's already determined it, then how? Maybe you've struggled with that a little bit, all right? So this is one of those things that people struggle with. All right, here's, here's what I have to say about that. Understanding Revelation chapter 20 is important. Scripture was given. It's inspired by God and, and given to teach us and rebuke us and instruct us and all that. It's, it's precious to us, and as is this chapter. But it's also difficult. It's hard to understand because there's not a lot anywhere else in the Bible that talks about it. And finally, it's not essential. I don't mean that Revelation 20 isn't essential. As a matter of fact, Revelation says, if you take anything out of this book, all the plagues are going to be on your head. So hear me clearly. Uh, Understanding the proper viewpoint of the millennium in relationship to the return of Christ is not essential for you to be a healthy, growing believer in Jesus. Does that make sense? You with me there? Okay. Uh, I'm not saying that Revelation 20 isn't essential because it's in there. It's important. We all have the text God revealed. There is disagreement. Here's an important point. Each one of these views is held by godly scholars. I picked those words carefully. First of all, they're godly. If you heard them pray, if you saw how they loved their spouses, how they parented their kids, how they regard the Bible, how they live their lives, you would admire them even if they held a view of the millennium that you don't particularly hold. And they're also scholars, which means they're masters of Greek and Hebrew and first century culture and Old Testament theology and prophecy. I mean, they've, they're so, they're, a lot of them are really smart. Uh, so they know a lot and they love God. 
Someone said, when you study the book of Revelation, you should just read one commentary. Uh, You may not be right, but at least you won't be confused. Because if you study more than one, you're going to be going, well, he says that, and he says that. And yeah, there's, there's three views of this one particular chapter. And I'm telling you, from personal experience, every single phrase is hard to, is, is hard to all put together. Uh, it's like a jigsaw puzzle, and every piece is square. Yeah, all right, think about that. All right, uh, okay, let's see. Uh, some of the details are not as clear as others. Somebody said, you know, we're not going to know for sure until the events happen, and, and then we won't care anymore. Uh, so thinking about the text is more important than reading other people's ideas about the text, uh, including mine, okay? The text is what is the Word of God. Number two, don't forget what Revelation is. John wrote down, actually wrote down, what God showed him. He saw things. He saw an angel and a key and a chain and a dragon being thrown into a bottomless pit. He saw that. It doesn't mean it actually happened. He saw it, okay? Uh, We are to read the book, hear the book, and take the book to heart. That comes out of chapter 1. Number three, as an example Old Testament prophets wrote many things they did not understand. They talked about stuff. They didn't have it all figured out. But the Bible's big picture is clear. Somebody said, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, just read it to your kids. They'll explain it to you. What do I mean by that? There are images here. What does this mean? Well, Dad, it means that the devil's going to get his butt kicked for a long time, and God's in control. That's what it means. Okay, that, that, the big picture they get, and, and we can too, by just seeing the pictures as they're presented to us. Now, this one is a little more technical. Uh, point number four in the box. Revelation deals with the transition from time to eternity. That's that introduction and the estuary concept. Revelation 20 presents a long but temporary in the sense that it's going to end, and the emphasis on the text, the text says more than once, when the thousand years were over, okay? It says that in verse 3, and it says it again, um, I can't see it right now, but it's, it's in here, oh, verse 7, when the thousand years are ended. So this is a temporary time, this uh, temporary messianic kingdom. What's a messianic kingdom? A kingdom that the Messiah is in control of. Messiah, the Old Testament word looking to Christ, the the chosen anointed one of God, Jesus. It's a kingdom that Jesus rules. Uh, And this, this temporary messianic kingdom combines characteristics of both worlds or ages. It has aspects of the temporary world, but it also has aspects of the eternal world where Christ is in control. The expectation of a future temporary kingdom is found in three different early Jewish apocalypses. What in the world are you talking about? Revelation has apocalyptic writing in it. Uh, The world falling apart, uh, dragons, angels, looking at stuff from heaven's perspective. That's all apocalyptic. There are other apocalyptic writings. Three of these writings 
two of them in the same time frame as the book of Revelation similarly talk about future temporary messianic kingdoms like this one that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 20. So what? The expectation of a future temporary kingdom, uh, the temporary messianic kingdom reconciles the expectation of a messianic kingdom with the eternal reign of God. This idea of looking forward to a Messiah who was going to come and reign, that's what the disciples were talking about with Jesus. Lord, in the book of Acts chapter 1, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they were looking for. They were looking for that because that's their worldview from reading the Old Testament. Jesus is going to come and he's going to reign. Hey, Lord, is this the time? What did Jesus say? It's not given for you to know the time. So when we come here to Revelation chapter 20, it helps me to understand that this vision that God gave John was uh, of this temporary kingdom that was before eternity. So this text is is the river of time flowing into eternity. Now, what happens at the end of time before eternity? First of all, all of God's enemies are defeated easily, summarily, completely. All his enemies are gone. What's, what's, who's God's greatest enemy? Yeah. Okay, this is what you're reading about. He's thrown in the slammer for a thousand years. Then he gets released for a little while, verse 3. But look at this, verse 7. Sorry, uh, let's see. Verse 10, the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ever and ever. Tormented eternally. God's enemies tormented eternally. That's one thing that happens, all right? God's enemy, God conquers and defeats all of his enemies. They're all gone. No more worries about any enemies. Another thing that happens is all people are judged. Uh, Let's see. Some came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years But the rest of the dead, I'm reading verse 5, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Look at what the text says. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. We sing that song, oh, when the saints come marching in, when the saints come marching in, oh, Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints come marching in. This is designed to make me and you think, whose side am I on here? And I hope you've heard me say that before. This book was not written to us, but it was written for us to clarify who are you following, the dragon or the lamb. And let me tell you what, if you're following the dragon, you're going to end up where the dragon ends up. You know where that is? Lake of fire, suffering forever. Now, in thinking about the lake of fire, let me ask you to think about this. We're going to read next week, it's going to get better, we're going to read about the new heavens and the new earth and being with God in heaven. Do you think heaven is actually better than what we're going to read about in the Bible? Do you think it's going to be better than that? I think so, too. It is. The experience of it is going to be better than reading about it, is it not? Well, does it stand to reason, then, that whatever hell is, is going to be worse 
than what you read about in here? I think so too. The experience of it. Hell is so bad that Paul said, man, if I could, I'd be accursed for the sake of my brethren so that they could hear the gospel. Paul knew something about heaven. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. How, How could he say that? He knew something. And he also said, I wish I could be accursed for the sake of my brethren. God, if you would send me to hell and all them would be saved and and with you for eternally, I'd take that. I love them so much. Why would a guy say that? Because he knew something. We're supposed to know something. We're supposed to know that this life doesn't go on and on and on like this. It's going into eternity. The river of time is flowing into eternity, and you're going to be in one of two places. You're going to be with God, or you're going to be in the lake of fire, suffering with the beast and the false prophet and the devil forever and ever. And it's supposed to make a difference in what we think about and how we live our lives. Judgment is coming, a great white throne. Books are open. People are judged. This is the end of the chapter. They're judged based on what they have done. It says that twice in here. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Yeah, verse 12. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 13. They were judged, each one of them. Hey, you're not going to be able to get hide behind me when when I face the Lord and just kind of sneak in under my jacket. Whew, I made it. That's not the way it's going to be. It's, Jesus said, the road is narrow. Only one person fits through at a time, and that judgment is going to be individual. You are going to stand before God and be judged according to what you have done. Have you accepted the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ? Are you placing your faith and trust and eternal well-being in Him? Or you got to go up there and say, I think I'm okay the way I am. Don't do that. Paul said, I've got every credential anybody could ever want, and I despise it all compared to knowing Jesus Christ, the perfect one who died so that I would not have to in my place. Okay, so what, have you trusted Christ, or are you resting on some, something you've done? Because you're going to be judged based on what you've done. Well, how we live our lives matters. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then those uh, at the end, uh, if your name is, interestingly enough, this, this books were open, book of life, names written in there. They're written in there from the foundation of eternity, from the foundation of the world. Names are in that book. All right, now you go figure that out, how your name was in there from eternity, uh, but there was a place in time where you trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You, you can think about that. If your name isn't in that book, lake of fire. Far worse than what it sounds like when you just read about it. Okay. Sorry? I sure am. Along with Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, absolutely right. I'm also saying that 
the gospel needs to be preached and Jesus needs to be accepted. Sin needs to be repented of and people need to be persuaded to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now you put, you put that together for me and I'll, I'll be glad to have you do that. Uh, and I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic there, but in all reverence, how do we pretend to understand what the sovereign God of the universe, how, how he's got this all planned out? It's like you trying to, little Parks Goddard, the little baby, six weeks old in the hospital, try talking to him about quantum mechanics. There's no way. Don't get mad at God because you don't understand how it all works together. There's no way you can. He's infinite. Now, we're... Uh, Every day, yeah, yeah. He and what? Please talk more about that. I'm going to close in prayer so that uh, this millennium here will end, and uh, you will be set free uh, to go out. Uh, let, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to really struggle uh, to understand a part of your word, uh, and and they everybody here has heard me struggling with it. And but but Father, the text is here. And this text unequivocally talks about the fact that you're sovereign over all, that you are good, uh, that your son genuinely is a way of salvation, uh, and that sin and death and hell are not eternal. Only you, Lord, and your people are eternal. So may that encourage us today. May it lift our spirits. May it give us hope and trust. And uh, so now we pray humbly, Lord, humbly, uh, with a generous acceptance of people who disagree with us. Uh, That's the spirit in which we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.